We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. This is another bonus pod. This is Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. For those who did not catch the first episode about a month ago, uh, this new project is about once per month or exactly once per month on the third Friday of each month, at least in theory. We will review a classic chess book. I will have a rotating cast of guest hosts. Uh, if you didn't catch the first one, Sam Copeland and chess and Sam Copeland and I, uh, Sam of Chess.com, uh, recapped uh, Mikhail Tal's Life in Games, the classic chess book, and we had a lot of fun. And Sam did a great job, and people seemed to enjoy it. So here we are again. And this time, I'll bring my guest in in a minute, but we're going to be. Recapping, as you probably saw in the title, Reassess Your Chess by I am Jeremy Silman. Of course, this is a classic chess book, um, often often recommended on the show, um, and I'm excited to talk about it. And helping me out this month will be a friend and supporter of the podcast, Todd Kennedy. Todd, thank you for helping us out and coming on Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, exciting. I mean, the only my only regret about picking this book is it's never ending. It's I mean, it's fun to read, but man, we really bit off a lot, didn't we, Todd? I mean, it's it's like uh what is it? 700 pages. I should know this uh having just read it. But yeah, about uh 658 pages of dense chess material, but there's a lot in there. So, Todd, this when you volunteered to come help out and again, volunteers are welcome. I think this is a fun way to hear different voices and give give uh, different people a chance to contribute to perpetual chess. But Todd, why why is it that uh, Reassess Your Chess was a book that you suggested? Yeah, well, it was key in my uh, development as um, as a player. I guess I can give a little bit of background. That yeah, that'd help. be good. Um, 
I'm currently an adult approver, uh, but I started playing chess in middle school um, and read Reassess Your Chess back then, and it just made such a great Im- impression on me. Uh, I really like the strategic language that he creates. Um, and I, I just had my oldest two kids read the book, um, and it gives us kind of a common yeah, common language to speak as we analyze their games. Um but yeah, it helped me a lot when I was improving. Um, I just remember we, I played in three World Opens uh, from 1995 to 1997. That's where you and I met. Um, I got up to about 1700 by the time I finished college, but stopped playing soon after when I started taking actuarial exams. Then when I finished those, I played a little bit more, got up to 1800, and then we started having kids. Uh, we have five kids now. Um, but I also wanted to, to share a couple of things that I've learned through uh, my experience. The first is uh, part of the reason I stopped playing is that I was kind of frustrated. I wasn't improving as much as I wanted to. And um, part of the frustration was chess was my, my thing. That was kind of my number one identity. Um, and I wasn't, you know, gaining as, as much as I wanted. I wasn't, you know, fulfilling my purpose, I felt. Um, I picked chess back up uh, two and a half years ago when my oldest kids were getting into it. And I decided at that point, the most important thing for me was to have fun with it. Um, But I am trying to improve. I I get a lot of uh, enjoyment from the challenge of that. Um, And now chess is my, I'd say my number five identity or priority after my faith, my wife, my kids, my job. So I don't place that same pressure on myself. And I think that's really helped. Um, I've also been doing daily chess, which is ideal for me uh, because it's hard for me to get away for a tournament. Uh, but I can still spend time when I have it in the evenings thinking about my moves. And then I like to analyze my games afterwards. And I feel like I have been improving. Um, I've got my daily chess rating on chess.com up to just below 2200. So, um, and like I mentioned, you know, I'm an adult. I'm 42 years old. Uh, I hope I can maybe inspire other adults, you know, that you can improve as well, um, even at this age. So, uh, but all that success, I guess, I've had getting to this level is I can trace it back to reassess your chess. And um, just it helped me understand strategy. You know, I knew a little bit about tactics at that point, but being able to, to digest a position and have a framework for understanding what's going on, um, that was, yeah, really helpful for me. Um, you know, I'd also mention, you know, that the book that, that we've both read, uh, I reread it recently. It's the fourth edition and, um, you know, it's just a lot bigger. I mean, there's so much in the third edition. That's what I read growing up. Uh, but this book is, thicker it's taller it's wider uh just feels good to to hold it so so we'll get back to the additions and you're gonna be the one that i lean on for that because i'm gonna be going strictly fourth edition and they're they're kind of separate books as we'll discuss but i wanted to just uh 
touch on a couple things you mentioned about your background. Number one, I do think it's cool that, I mean, to have five kids and be pursuing chess, totally understandable that you're not playing tournaments. It's amazing that you're able to work on getting better at all. But I also think you're, that makes you a good person to discuss this book, particularly the fact that you mentioned that you're passing it on to the next generation and that your, your two kids that are into chess have read it. So what, what were their reactions to reassess your chess? I think, yeah, they liked it. Um, they're still how, how getting old into are they? They're 13 and 11. Okay. Yeah, so and, old enough that they um, can handle it. Right. Yep. Um, one, one of the things I struggle with, and, and maybe other people do as well, is how much to push your kids into different things. And they don't have quite the same, the, the chess bug that I've had. Um, so, but I don't want to, you know, push it too hard. Um, I've got it, you know, my, my third and fourth kids are doing chess steps, actually. Oh, cool. And they they seem to be enjoying that. Um, so, and we also homeschool and I've made it part of like the curriculum. So they have a specific chess class with assignments. So, I, you know, partly I want them to, to understand chess because I think it helps develop, develop their brains, develop critical thinking skills and so on. So even if it's just that, but if they also decide they really get into it and want to play in tournaments and, want to do more than just what I assign. I think that's great too. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned they're 11 and 13. You and I are the same age and we came in. Um, so born and for me, 1977, uh, were, were you born in 77 as well, Todd? Yes. April. Um, yeah. So when we were 11 and 13, that was right before the first edition of reassess your chess. Um, and it kind of ushered in a new kind of chess writing, in my opinion. Um, it's not, it wasn't completely, um, you know, original. Uh, something like Chess Chow, to me, is kind of like an intellectual brother of it, the magazine uh, that I discussed with Joel Benjamin when he came on the show. But this idea that you didn't have to write about chess in a super serious and academic way is something that... I didn't see that much of when I was a kid. So I was reading my system and masters of the chessboard and, um, you know, pawn power and all these books that are, are really good, but they didn't, they didn't have that relatability that has made Jeremy Selman so revered. So it's, it's good that your, that your kids are exposed to something that I think maybe like, as you say, if they don't have the natural fire for chess, maybe, maybe his writing can help draw them in a little bit. There's so many things that are neat as I've gotten back into chess culture today with uh, not just podcasts, but uh, videos and um, so much more that you could do online. Um, it's re really quite impressive. In, in a way, I kind of wish I was growing up right now uh, with all the great uh, educational materials and chess books and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to to go deep into the book in the in a minute, but a, a couple more just sort of um, big picture items to touch on um, before we get to that. Number one, this is Todd is the second consecutive co-host who I have attempted to pay a nominal um, nominal amount of money to for the many hours that Todd has put into this project. But once again, as Sam Copeland did, Todd is uh, choosing to donate this uh, stipend, you could call it, to a chess initiative. So first of all, that's really cool, Todd. Props to you for doing that. And second of all, uh, to to what entity will you be donating this uh, somewhat meager sum? 
Yeah, well, every little bit helps. It's to the Robert Katende Initiative, and if that name sounds familiar, he's the teacher in Queen of Katwe, which was a great movie. I actually read the book first, but it's such an inspirational story. He's still there doing the same things, reaching out to the people in Kampala with the joy of chess, and I just think um, what he's doing is so neat. I'm just glad to, to support him. Awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely happy to indirectly play a role in that. And once again, I uh, commend you uh, for doing that. So a couple other things to mention off the top. Um, As we mentioned, there have been many editions of this book. I believe the first one was in 1991. And the most recent, the fourth edition, which is primarily the one we'll be talking about is 2010. So with the Mikhail Tao book, Sam or I talked a little bit about the sort of zeitgeist of when the book was published. But since this is a 20-year span, um, and they're, like I said, they're kind of different books. So I don't think, um, we're not going to go into that too much. I mean, and it's also kind of more recent history, so... Um, you guys have a general sense for the timing. I also wanted to read a couple quotes. So, um, of course, we like to discuss like who else uh, has has expressed their love for their this book, um, especially people who've been guests on Perpetual Chess. Um, and in this case, uh, Sagar Shah was the first person who came to mind. Um, I haven't interviewed him for it was about two years ago that I interviewed him, but I remember that he raved about the book. Uh, in our interview, he said, I, "quote I love Jeremy Silman," and then I reached out to him just to get a little more color on what it was that was special about this book. Sagar Shah, of course, is the uh, founding driving force of Chess Base India, just doing an absolutely incredible job. Um, creating content over at Chess Base India, interviewing people, writing, uh, analyzing games, so on and so forth. The chess world is very lucky to have him. And of course, Sagar was Johnny on the spot when I asked him for a quote about uh, why what Reassess Your Chess has meant to him. So here's the quote. It's a bit of a long one, but I think it's worth reading. So Sagar Shah said, the book changed my life. When I was close to a 2100 rated player, I reached a point in my play where I could play logical chess, but I was often outplayed by stronger opponents from equal positions and also sometimes from better positions. I don't know why it would happen, but somehow my play lacked the cohesiveness required to play a game well from start to finish. It was also around this time that I started to work on Reassess Your Chess. It was the third edition back then, and I remember I completed the entire book in less than a week. I enjoyed it so much, it was just what I needed. In every position, I now had a technique to base my thinking on, look at the imbalances in the positions, and try to form your plans on it. It wasn't easy at the start, as someone would say, look at the minor pieces, pawn structures, material, open files, weak squares, development, initiative, and so many factors. For many days, I would look at a position and try to assess it on these varied parameters. It took time, but the idea was to make them a part of me. In some ways, I had to make it a part of my subconscious thinking process. And after months of work, I think I was able to achieve it. I remember the first time I used the imbalance technique in the tournament, I felt a kind of cohesiveness, a logical flow in my play, which I had never had before. I would always get confused whether X was a better move or Y. But when I did the proper imbalance analysis, I always had a reason to back the move I was making. Today, I can say I don't really need to remember Soman's points of imbalances. I can look at a position on my mind. And my mind simply runs through all the points very quickly. It has been years of work on this subject, which easily easily lets me decide which imbalance is more important and which one is not. That being said, chess is quite a difficult game. And just knowing the imbalance and its importance is half the battle won. 
you, you need to also calculate well, choose the appropriate variations and moves. And in that, there is always scope for improvement, even for the strongest players in the world. The book has made a deep impact on me as a chess player and helped me to improve from a 2100 player to a 2300 player, a 2300 plus rated player. Um, and he's 2400 plus, I believe. It's also one of those reasons that when Chessbase India started selling, oh, excuse me, it's a, one of the reasons that when Chessbase India started selling books, one of the first books we tried to introduce was the Reassess Your Chess, Jeremy Soman. Jeremy Soman, I will always be your big fan. Thanks for your wonderful contribution to the world of chess. So I'll get, I have another quote to read, a shorter one, but Todd, uh, let's let you hop in after that lengthy quote. What's uh, any reactions to uh, what Sagar had to say about that? I don't know. I don't think I can say it any better than he did. Um, it's just, yeah, inspiring to to hear what he said. Yeah, and what's impressive about that to me is um, Jeremy Soman himself, and somewhere deep in the book, I think it's in the appendix, he actually lays out who he thinks the uh, book is appropriate for, which he says 1400 to 2100 is roughly the range. For those of you wondering, The Amateur's Mind, one of Jeremy Soman's other classic chess books, he says, I think 1200 to 1900. So I was surprised to see right off the top that Sagar Shah is saying that it was when he was stuck at 2100 was when he dug into this book. And I just uh, to give a little more color on my own experience with this book, I'm a huge Jeremy Soman fan, especially for me, the most formative book of his has been the Endgame course. Um, especially as a teacher. Um, uh, most of my chess improvement took place um, uh, up until 1995 when, similar to Todd, I had uh, life get in the way for a while and I've gotten back into it in the past um, five years or so. But so for that reason, Jeremy Selman's true heyday was was not when I was most active, especially as a player. So I've used his materials for coaching. I already had Reassess Your Chess and the Reassess Your Chess workbook. But I'm... Uh, I wasn't as deeply steeped in it as Sagar Shah, for example, and Todd. Um, uh, moving on to the next quote, though, and this is from a friend of the, friend of the show who's a popular guest, uh, popular author. I am Cyrus Lakdawala, um, who is very friendly with Jeremy Soman. So I, I reached out to him just to, to see what he, would, what he would have to say. And the first thing he said about Jeremy Soman high praise coming from someone like Cyrus Lakdawala is he said, I think he is the writer of my generation. And then Cyrus in typical modest fashion says his one book reassess your chess has sold more copies than all 43 of mine put together. And I asked him if that, if he was like uh, exaggerating and he said, no, that's really what he meant. Um, Cause Cyrus's books are, you know, they're reasonably popular. So that speaks volumes about how popular Silman's work is. And in fact, it's, you know, uh, Chess-based book sales are um, somewhat hard to deconstruct, but you can. I mean, uh, Edward Winter has a famous post about the po- most popular chess books of all time. Um, and also, you can go to the Amazon best chess, best-selling chess books. And in the top 100 there, um, they kind of move around a little, little bit. And you'll see uh, newer books sometimes at the top. But Silman's a fixture there. Um, and reassess your chest when I looked, um, was number 13 and he also has number 17, number 22 and number 24 in the top 100. So Jeremy Soman is quite a popular, um, chess author, just, just to sum it up. Um, and, uh, last but not least, a few other people who've recommended his, uh, reassess your chest in general, or, um, 
his works generally. Um, Coach Jay Stallings, adult improver Cristobal Servino, and recent guest GM Robert Hungoski. So um, I was going to read his bio, but I feel like I've been talking nonstop. So Todd, do you want to give a little background here on uh, Jeremy Soman? I would like to meet him someday. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think I mean, he's, he's a little elusive, but uh, I'd also like him to write more. Like, I don't know what he's uh, busy doing these days, but can I just get more Jeremy Silman? Yeah, I dug into that a little bit. I asked around, and um, I hear that he's he's semi-retired, spends time in California as well as Japan. Um, he's got this movie site, SilmansAsianMovieReviews.com. Of course, he does do uh, what I, as far as I can tell, is a bi-weekly. I think it's called bi-weekly when you write something every other week. Um, as opposed to twice a week. But every other week, he writes a column for chess.com that's still like vintage Silman. All of his humor and insight and chess history knowledge is still present. But yeah, it seems like um, he keeps a reasonably low profile for anyone wondering. Of course, I did try once to get him on the guest, to get him as a guest on the show. I did not pull out all the stops, but I did try to email him once without any luck. Jeremy Silman, if you catch wind of this, um, we're going to sit here praising your book for an hour. So it seems like uh, reaching out to me would be the least you can do. I would love, love to have a conversation about your contributions to the chess world. Um, so a couple other things to know. Uh, he has won the American Open, the National Open, the U.S. Open. He's been a top 50 player in the U.S., uh, rated over 2,500 USCF at his peak. Um, we mentioned his endgame course, The Amateur's Mind. Uh, his other well-known book is The Complete Book of Chess Strategy. So... Um, yeah, quite a popular um, and uh, correctly well-regarded author. So um, one other thing I just have to mention, I'm sorry, before we dig into the book, I do want to mention that I happened to notice when I was um, prepping for this that when you Google reassess your chess, you know how they do the autocomplete, Todd? Yes. Well, you may have seen this in, in our outline, but uh, would you guess what the first word after uh, reassess your chess is in Google autocomplete? Or again, if you've seen it, you don't have to feign ignorance. I was hoping it'd be like, is, is the best chess book or something like that. Right. Yeah, that would be nice. But the number one hit is PDF. The first thing that people look up when they look up reassess your chess is reassess your chess uh, uh, PDF, which really bothers me. Um, hopefully people listening are not stealing chess books, but I mean, it's really, I know that not everyone is overflowing with money, but I mean, someone like Jeremy Soman is your kindred spirit, you know? I mean, you know, we get into chess because we love it and we feel an affinity with the community. So to, to take their work that way, um, just, you know, it, it, it makes me sad. So I, I know that, I know that money can be tight, but it's really important to support the people. I mean, Think about this, again, hundreds and hundreds of pages. This is like his life's work. Um, so in terms of the ROI you get for, you know, the 20 bucks or whatever the book costs, I, I think that you, you've got to try to find a way to come up with it. Or worst case, borrow someone's, that's not stealing. Go to the library, that's not stealing. But the downloading the electronic version is just uh, beyond the pale, in my opinion. So I had to hit on that while we talk about chess books. Um, and I think that our goal for this should be to make people understand how valuable the book is. And it's totally worth the $20. Just spend it. Yeah. I mean, we're 
you know, our biggest challenge, and we're already facing the challenge, Todd, is we're going to try to keep this to about an hour. There, I said it, so we'll see how we do. Um, and that's generally going to be the goal for these. Um, and it's a 700-page book that Todd and I have been emailing back and forth for, you know, three and a half weeks, making notes. So it's not easy. There's just so much stuff in here. We're only going to scratch the surface. So, yeah, again, $20 well spent. And I think that's true generally of uh, any chess book that you will hear recommended um, in books generally. Um, you don't get much better ROI than than the cost of a book in terms of uh, the impact you can have. As as Sagar Shah said, the the book changed his life. Um, okay, Todd, you ready to actually get into the meat of the book? Let's do it. Okay. Well, one last thing, we are going to take a quick commercial break, and then Todd will join in and read the first sentence. Guys, we're going to pause for a minute to make sure you are aware of ChessMugs.com. It's a limited edition set of four coffee mugs that feature hand-drawn portraits of all 16 undisputed world chess champions. They're dishwasher safe. They're microwavable. I've been enjoying my morning coffee with them each morning. Happy to report some perpetual chess listeners have picked them up, but there's still some available. And once again, this is limited edition. Once they're gone, they're gone. So if you'd like to check them out, go to chessmugs.com, chess and then M-U-G-S, all one word. Use code perpetual chess at checkout and you can save 15% on your order. So check that out, get them while you can. And now it is back to the show. Yes, uh, Ben. So the first sentence of the book is how to reassess your chess is all about turning you, the chess student slash lover of the game, into a player with superb positional understanding and skills. And I also wanted to read something from part one. So it gets a little bit more specific. It, it introduces the key concept. If you want to be successful, you have to base your moves and plans on these specific imbalance-oriented criteria that exist in a given position, not on your mood, tastes, and or fears. And an imbalance is any significant difference in the two respective positions. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and he talks about that. It might be that same spot or somewhere else in the book, but generally the the idea that uh, the position wants what it wants, you know, to, to paraphrase uh, Woody Allen. Um, so you might have your own, you might have your own uh, ambitions for what you want to do, but you have to listen to what your pieces are telling you. Um, so let's dig into sort of broad brushstrokes of what the book structure is. Um, the, he's got um, a number of key imbalances that he lays out that we'll get to in a minute. Um, actually, we might as well do that now. So what are all of the imbalances? Yes, they are superior minor piece, pawn structure, space, material, control of a key file, control of a weak square, lead and development, initiative, king safety, and statics versus dynamics. Okay, yeah. So 10 imbalances um, and... uh, each each chapter basically is structured the same way. There's minor deviations, but basically he spends a good amount of time introducing the concept, explaining it, providing uh, examples from games, providing game snippets, um, and interjecting some humor. And after that, there's a little test at the end of each chapter, and he's pretty consistent with this. And the tests are not just kind of like the tactics type tests 
where you you try to get it right and you get it wrong and then you find out the answer which only has moves. The tests are basically even more instructional content um, because he includes the answers to the tests in the back, but then it's basically just more book. I mean, it's he explains the answers and annotates them, um, and it's it's a cool presentation and I think it's pretty effective. What do, what do you think of how it's uh, structured, Todd? Yeah, I was just looking. That's a pretty big chunk of the book, really, uh, is the answers to the tests in the back. It actually went through, I think I counted 117. So that's great. I mean, there's so much meat describing each imbalance and giving some examples of how it's used. But then he kind of throws you in the deep end, in a sense, and forces you to kind of crunch that. I think it really helps having those exercises to make sure that the reader understands and can utilize what they're what they're learning really reinforces the concepts well yeah and it's nice that he gives little rating ranges for each puzzle so that you're not just totally in the wild about like if you're in over your head um or you know alternatively if you feel like you should be getting something you know like sometimes it's like uh he would have like a 1400 to 1800 puzzle and i'd be staring at it like man i don't know (laughs) you know so it can go either way but i mean it's certainly helpful it's uh the whole book i mean he's clearly just put so much thought into how to present things in in a um uh digestible and relatable way which i think is why he's so beloved so we mentioned all of the imbalances by the way i mean he has nine chapters so I mean, it's kind of hard to exactly parse the number of imbalances because he also has like, uh, you know, and he has very clear chapters for the first eight and then part nine, he says other imbalances. So you could uh, quibble with the number, but you get the basic idea of what the major imbalances uh, that he mentions. Um, So which chapter resonated with you the most, Todd? I really like the, uh, it's part of the superior minor piece part. It's bishops versus knights. And it just struck me, it's it's really interesting to me that both of these pieces are usually given about the same value in general. I mean, maybe you have a bit more for two bishops. But these values, whether it's three or three and a half, they can be much different depending on the exact position. And I like the way Silman uses examples to show in this part, how you can steer the position to make it more favorable for your minor pieces. Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert, we will be doing a blindfold or two blindfold puzzles at the end of the show. And Todd um, uh, astutely pointed out the uh, a possibility for the first one, which is from that section. So we will get to that. Um, as for my favorite chapter, Um, mine is the one about static versus dynamic versus dynamic edges. Um, I just find it to be a very useful framing for how to think about, um, different types of edges in a position. Obviously, I think on a, um, subconscious level, I was aware of like, okay, if you have a lead in development, um, that could go away. Whereas if someone has an isolated pawn, um, that will not go away unless it's captured or, you know, um, sacrificed or whatever it may be. Um, but the static versus, dyna- versus dynamic edge uh, formulation, I've, I found uh, a useful framing. Uh, Silman defines it as one side's long-term pluses, such as superior structures, and the others, short-term, use them now, do or die chances, such as active pieces, attacking possibilities based on a vul- vulnerable enemy king, or swing from the fences tactics that seemingly appear from nowhere, but actually are a logical expression of basic com- 
combinative rules. Um, so I think I think that little excerpt gives a a little sense for um, uh, Selman's way with words too, which which brings us to our next section, which is favorite quotes. And this is probably what do you think, Todd? I feel like this is probably the hardest thing for us to whittle down. Yeah, there's so many um, great great ones. So I, we can just give a teaser, and uh, the listener will have to get the book to do the rest, but. Uh, can I go first? Yeah, you can. But let me just hop in just to to reiterate in case everyone's got different editions with this book in particular, since they're basically different books. This is the fourth edition. If you were to like order one brand new, this is the 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 most recent one that you would get. So when we say page numbers, they may or may not line up, but we're going to read the quote anyway. Um, but just something to keep in mind. But the words are more important. So Todd, take it away with one of your favorite quotes. All right. So, page 159, for those who want to follow along, uh, but he says, If the opponent makes a threat or a move that interrupts your plan, train your mind not to writhe in terror. Instead, heap scorn on your opponent's idea with a hearty internal rubbish. I'm serious. Whenever you see an enemy threat, your first thought should be rubbish. Though even stronger language can be used if you find it sets your thinking processes in the right direction, which I would say you'd still want to have internal. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I think it's great advice because um, I've tended to, to think that if I'm surprised by a move, sometimes I immediately think, well, what did I miss? And that's not getting my thinking process off on the right track. But instead, I, I look doubtful on it. I still want to treat it carefully and legitimately analyze it, but I don't want my thinking process to, to get, to get off and start in fear. I want to start with a confident evaluation of, you know, I don't think that's going to work. What what can I do to show that it's not going to work? Yeah. And I think that quote, I mean, it's funny, first of all, but also it, again, it underscores that, that Soman had the unique ability to sort of, uh, understand the club player's plight more than more than other authors. I mean, he he speaks to you in a conversational tone, uh, you the reader, um, and not super serious. And I just think uh, there wasn't a lot like that when when he started, you know, when he really started to make a name for himself. So I will now take one of my uh, three favorite quotes, um, which I believe is from the, the minor peace chapter that you mentioned as your favorite, Todd. Um, which is, here comes the quote. He says, "Each this is from page 40, each piece you own should be treated with parental care. If your bishop is hitting a brick wall, find or create a diagonal for the poor thing. If your knight is sitting around like a couch potato, drag it in an embattled sector and put the lazy thing to work. Um, so again, that just gives a little taste of uh, his writing style. Um, there was an, there's another puzzle later in the book where he's got like a horrible knight on H8 that can barely move because there's pawns everywhere. And he says like, what's that thing on H8? Um, so just, yeah, very funny when you're reading the book, uh, keeps you entertained. Um, do you want to go to your next one, Todd? Sure. I just wanted to say on that one, it reminds me of something that Jakob Ogard says about your worst place piece. Yeah. And sometimes you just need to get it in. Um, and, and it also speaks to just, you need to make things work. Uh, you know, he talks about this elsewhere, but, um, don't give up. Don't think, oh, my bishop's stuck or my knight is over there. It's not gonna, it's not gonna work, but you know, put all your pieces to use. Yeah. But, um, 
Oh, this uh, I like this one. Page 279. The best chess games are all about the war of ideas, the battle of imbalances, and the face-to-face struggle of one player's will against the other. If you don't have a fighter's mentality, if you wilt in the face of an opponent who grabs the positive features of this position and come at you again and again as if he was a rabid dog, then you will find that chess success and real chess enjoyment eludes you. A to-the-death battle of mind and knowledge and skill and heart is what makes chess so exhilarating. I'm not sure I like the rabid dog metaphor, but it is hard not to be motivated to learn chess after reading that quote. Yeah, and in, uh, that that's a great one. And Todd, that's one I had highlighted too. So uh, full disclosure, when we made this, uh, when we drew up our outline, you had already picked your quotes. So that was an easy cut for me, but it was not hard to find another one. I mean, I heard... I had highlighted like 15 possibilities. So, um, but yeah, that would have been in with mine as well. Just really, um, you know, that that's what we're here for. Um, okay. On to my quote, number two, this one's about critical moments, which of course, uh, in the course of interviewing various guests has come up repeatedly, um, how important it is. I often end up stressing it to my students. All moments in a game are not created equal. And this is what Silman had to say about it. This is page 183. He says, once you realize that this is the major decision of the game, i.e. you lose back your pawn or you retain it, you should be motivated to put every last ounce of energy into finding the solution to your problem. And if it turns out that there wasn't a solution to be found or that the answer was beyond your level, don't feel bad. As long as you recognize the moment's importance and tried as hard as you could to solve it, there's no reason not to feel happy with yourself. Um. And again, I think that kind of shows his empathy. I mean, he not only gives good instruction, but he sort of gives you a way to forgive yourself if you're not meeting those instructions because chess is hard. Um, Anything, Todd, if you have anything to add on that one or if you just want to hop into your next quote, uh, have at it. Well, I think it relates to to the next quote a lot uh, of getting into the amateur's mind, I guess. Um, Well, I'll read it. it. He says, a word about the examples. You'll notice that I've used games by grandmasters and also games by amateurs. Lower-rated games and or blitz games often feature the kind of errors real players make, and this makes the example far more personal for a large range of readers. So I think it's encouraging for developing players to see in a chess book the types of positions they get into and maybe see others make uh, mistakes that they tend to make. Um, but it also, I think, makes it easier to see examples of how the principles that they learn about in the book can relate to their games in a way that it's a little bit harder if you're looking at a grandmaster game. Yeah, and again, Silman was um, a trailblazer. Uh, you know, I I don't know the the chess literature canon well enough to say with complete authority which authors might before him have um, used. Uh, amateur game so much i mean of course um i'm sure there have been cases but but his um his unique ability to show amateur games as something to learn from but also something to champion as as we'll be getting to in the favorite game part um i think is is another strength of his writing um for for my third and final quote again wasn't easy picking but this one has to deal with openings and 
Uh, regular perpetual chest listeners will know that openings are a bit of a bugaboo for me. They're not, they're not my favorite, but I really love, uh, Silman's treatment of openings. I mean, it's got some sort of, um, you know, uh, it, it touches on the themes of, um, needing, you know, needing to know the plan more so than the theory. Silman's got a bit of uh, anti-computer bias and he doesn't seem to love, uh, even though back in the day he, he wrote some great opening books, but, um, he, um, he he speaks more about needing to know plans. So without further ado, this is from the appendix, page 632. Um, and this is a, a f- um, well, I'll let the quote speak for itself. So he says, since opening theory changes minute by minute, a player's opening can never be as safe or effective as he would like them to be. And because memorizing a bunch of book lines just doesn't cut it, a real pro needs to fortify his systems with new moves and ideas and new interpretations of old ideas. Since staying on top of the game is a 24-7 process, a true chess professional doesn't have much of a life outside the game. In fact, even if the hunky chess god manages to somehow score the attentions of a young lady for an evening, he'll be so obsessed with the millions of variations swirling around in his brain that as her lips draw close to his, he'll be thinking, damn, how do I answer Kasparov's new idea in The Sicilian? So, so, uh, again, very, very relatable. Uh, even if you're not a chess professional, um, one's, one's mind can wander to chess, uh, at different times. And also just, um, the challenge of keeping up with openings is something that I think even, I mean, again, this is a 2010 version here. We are nine months later, nine years later, excuse me. And the, the torrent of opening theory has only increased and the computers are only getting stronger and teaching us more and thus requiring to us to memorize more. So uh, more apropos than ever. Um, so that just gives you a little taste. Obviously, there's so many more quotes, some, uh, some mix of funny and incisive um, and, or, and or both. But it is time to move on to favorite games. So, Todd, what games struck you? from reassess your chess well there were a lot that i could have picked i just picked one favorite game i guess to bring up and it deals with the uh battle between dynamic and static imbalances like you brought up a little bit ago Uh, the dynamic imbalances are ones that are temporary and so you have to work to convert them into stronger static imbalances or they'll likely fizzle out uh, the game is uh, Volokitin versus Delchev from Calvia, 2004. It's on page 292. But 11 moves into the game. The imbalances are pretty clear. Black has static imbalances of a stronger center and two half-open queenside files for his rooks. White, on the other hand, has two dynamic imbalances. Black, his opponent, is behind in development and Black's king is still in the center. And so, since White's advantages are temporary and will go away if Black is left alone to finish his development, White must act. So, he plays f5 to attack the center, and five moves later, the roles are actually swapped. White has static advantages of a weak square on e5 and an open f-file for his rook. But Black has dynamic advantages, of a kingside attack. And I, I just thought it was neat how the imbalances can shift so quickly. Um, and I think a lot of games are like this, or you have to be prepared. Uh, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but you might have a certain imbalance that you're all set, like it might be a knight on an outpost, and you're all ready to take advantage of it. But 
your opponent might work to counter that, but leave you an opportunity somewhere else. And you have to be prepared to, to go with it, to um, go with that other. If he neutralizes one place, you um, have to maybe abandon that, but come up with a different plan and um, transform your advantage into a different imbalance. So I just, I thought it was really good to, to really drive home that point that you have to sometimes uh, let the game change and take advantage of opportunities. Yeah, it's a good game, and he's got a good line in that game where he, he says uh, White, thanks to his grab-the-position-by-the-tail mentality, has bulldozed his way to a clear advantage after move 19. And he actually takes the somewhat unusual attack at that moment in the game of uh, the he deviated, uh, Black made a mistake on move 19. So that game is available on chessgames.com, but he actually inserts like different, more instructional, more instructive moves um, to further elucidate his points because the actual game sort of deviated from the theme he was illustrating, which is, um, uh, you know, another useful thing for uh, getting the most from an instructive game. Um, so for me, uh, my favorite game, I, I kind of cheated and picked two, but I picked one amateur and one grandmaster game. The amateur game was, he's <laughs> Jeremy Soman has been uh, writing about this book for, uh, I mean, this came out in 2010, so it was b- about 35 years at the time, uh, Kadig and Mickey Mills. Um, and of course, uh, Silman sort of uh, brilliantly um, describes this game that the guy showed, and he kind of single-handedly makes this guy Mickey Mills, who played this brilliant game, famous. Uh, he says he's, he, Silman says he was about a 1,500 player, um, just plays this brilliant attacking game. Silman had been working with him a bit about sort of uh, setting his pieces free. Um, d- brilliant, beautiful sacrificial game. Silman was showing the game to his like IM and GM friends. So he has a quote in the book from Larry Christensen after showing the game where GM Larry Christensen said, who was that mask grandmaster? Uh, Silman uh, re- wrote a follow-up article about it on chess.com that I'll link to um, where he goes into the background uh, a little bit. He mentions in the follow-up article that um, the book made its way into some like classic chess games tome i can't i can't remember the the exact specifics but um he he was reading through some other you know he was the first person to highlight this game and he was reading some like great games of whatever decade or something like that and it was a bunch of ims and gms and this 1500 student of his mickey mills who had like made his way to the public discourse because i think he also mentions in the that article that he originally wrote about this in chess life so just uh, amazing the impact that his writing can have and it's a fun game to look at so that was my favorite um, number two, in terms of GM games, there's a, a famous Karpov-Yusupov game, just a nice, clean, positional win. It's a good night against a bad bishop, which, of course, uh, Todd, you you no doubt remember uh, Silman's term for a bad bishop. Yes, a tall pawn. Yeah, I love that, a tall pawn. So this one's a good night against the tall pawn, uh, very instructive, and um, that one's on page 306. So, of course, there was a lot more we could have highlighted, but we're going to keep it moving. And we're going to go to our improvement takeaways. So this one is about, um, like, if you could synthesize what you learned from this book into some a few bullet points. Of course, we're talking, again, nearly a 700-page book. Um, but um, you got to try. You know, that's why we're here. So um, my number one was... Um, material is just another imbalance. 
So again, it's something that you might have, it might have crossed your mind, but you don't have the language to put it in um, such a succinct and memorable manner. Of course, for me, the book that really drove this home, I've mentioned this before, is Jonathan Rousen's Seven Deadly Chess Sins. He calls materialism one of the de- seven deadly chess sins. And, but I just find the problem uh, even at, at my level, or I should say at least at my level, however you want to think of it, um, it's an intractable problem. It's just so hard to just sacrifice for, um, you know, initiative or positional considerations. I mean, if it's an opening, you know, it's one thing. But if you're just kind of freestyling, it's just very hard to just give something up. But I think the framing of material is just another imbalance. So you think of it in terms of his long list of imbalances and put material sort of in the same box. I think that can be really helpful in terms of uh, being willing to do what it takes. And certainly when you look at the greats play chess, it's clear that they're playing that way. So whether you're there or not in terms of your game, it is definitely something to aspire to. You know, Ben, that that reminds me of a time when um, I, you know, challenged myself and and in a game, I actually sacrificed a pawn for initiative. And I don't think I had ever done that before. And I, I showed the game to my friend, uh, FM Jim Dean, and he was proud of me. He said, oh, you know, that's great. Great move. Um, so I, I echo that. It, it's hard to do that um, because, we, yeah, we get too used to counting the material right. And are we up you know, 11 to 9 or something like that? But it really uh, is kind of like jumping off a diving board into the deep end the, the first time because you're, you're making a big a big gamble in a sense. But once, once you get used to that, um, it can be kind of freeing. Yeah. Although I feel like it's not the kind of thing where you do it once and then you're just off to the races. I mean, it it kind of takes a, like in the Sagar Shah quote I read at the beginning, I mean, he put in real work to reframe his thinking and that's sort of what I think is necessary for, for learning to, uh, treat your material a little, um, less dearly. Um, and again, I'm, I don't feel like I'm there myself. That would be a priority if I were um, to, to be working on my chest. But it's, at least you have this framing so that you can at least remind yourself during the game, hey, it's just an imbalance. If you lose a pawn, uh, you know, there's, there's maybe another imbalance that, that provides some sort of uh, compensation. Um, improvement takeaway number two is um, pick openings that are practical based on your life situation. Um, he had a, a funny quote relating to um, memorizing Reams of Nidorf theory. Um, I think it came not not long before that quote I read earlier about the, the life of a chess professional worrying about some Kasparov novelty. Um, but basically, his broader point is, um, you know, not only should your openings be fun, but you just you have to make a conscious decision if, you know, if you're a working adult, uh, you, that should enter into the equation of what openings you play. Um, so you might love the Nidorf, but if you're trying to maximize your results with the, um, the cards that you are playing in from a life perspective, um, you know, I know, uh, 
I'm going to give a shout out to Chess Essentials, who I went back and forth with. Well, not really back and forth, but he hates the London and he hates that the London's getting more popular. And when I interviewed uh, Adrian Demuth, who did a course on the London for Chess 24, I was saying, oh, this this tempts me to to play the London. You know, obviously, I need some kind of shortcut. And he was uh, he was basically saying, like, no, you know, don't fall. Don't fall to the dark side Um, because it's openings like that. It's so hard to resist when you're an adult. Uh, it's so hard to resist something where at least you can cut the theory uh, to some extent. But but um, don't worry, I'm I'm not going to play the London. <laughs> so I can't prepare. Uh, right. Yeah. Play, prepare so. for that tournament that I might play someday. <laughs> yeah. But that resonates with me as well. And also, well, my memory was never really that good, but it's not as good as it even used to be. So um I, you know, had to pick openings that are not as technical, uh, but more idea, um, more idea um, oriented, you know, and that it kind of gets that, uh, you know, some advice I wanted to share that, that he also had on the openings, which is really understand the imbalances that are going to come out of your openings, because that once you depart from opening, whether it's past your preparation or the opponent does something a little bit different, you have already done some of your homework and you know what the typical plans are, hopefully, and what you know, the bounces are. Maybe in this position, you have a good bishop or you have uh, probably going to have a good outpost for your knight. Um, and that just gives you a head start so you feel more comfortable uh, with that even when you, you know, first depart from your opening preparation. Yeah, uh, well said. I, I have nothing to add. Um, moving on to the number three improvement takeaway. This one, I believe, if it wasn't an explicit takeaway from um, Sam Copeland and I's review of the Mikhail Tal book, it certainly was implicit, which is chess should be fun. Um, I mean, Silman's love of chess just, uh, I mean, it basically jumps off the pages. And again, the practical advice he gives in terms of like, how to structure a, a chess competing life that is fun, uh, I think is really important. So those are my three improvement takeaways. Do you have anything to add, Todd? Yeah, well, one other thing I wanted to mention, and it came to mind earlier when you read that quote from uh, Sagar Shah, which is, um, he said, I had a reason to back the move I was making. And I, I think one trap you might fall into is that you're going to get into a position and you, and you look at the imbalances and immediately one move is going to come to light. It might not be that way, but at least you have a reason for making a move. You know, there could be two or three different things that you're having trouble choosing among, but more than likely than not, an assessment of the imbalances is going to lead you to a good move. It might not be the best one, but it's going to be good. And, um, you know, especially if you're, you know, my strength, um, if you're below, uh, you know, if, if you're reading this book and you're like 1400 or something, um, you know, the same thing with your openings is you don't have to always pick the best move, the best opening. It's okay to play an opening with white where maybe you have a slight disadvantage according to the computer. But if you understand your position, you understand, um, the imbalance as well, you're probably going to make less mistakes than the opponent. Yeah, and that's a point that Selman highlights in, in his writing frequently. Um, so, so I'm glad that, that you brought that in. Um, okay, next up, uh, we've touched on this, of course, but um, 
a regular feature when we do these um, perpetual chess books recaptured uh, is just to, to, I mean, it's so hard to pick which chess books to read. So I know that a lot of people want to know, cut to the chase of how useful is it for chess improvement as opposed to chess appreciation, uh, chess history, etc. But if we just focus on chess improvement, uh, what do you think, Todd? How useful? Very. Extremely. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you know, like up to 2000, but really Cigar um, mentioned, you know, even 2100 to 2300. And I think perhaps especially for like the younger players these days, a lot of them are very tactically advanced and might get to a high level just based on tactics. But having that, the fundamentals, understanding of positions um, can help you improve even more. And, and Silman, I think, mentioned 1400, right, was kind of the lower end. But I think you can go even lower than that, especially for an adult. Um, where, you know, an adult can probably appreciate uh, strategy more and, and even just like the joy of learning. You know, you, you give this to like a young kid who's uh, 1,200, um, they just want to play. You know, they don't want to yeah. spend all this time reading about which bishop is better. But an, an adult improver who's uh, not quite to 1,400 yet, I think can still get a lot. Um, you know, probably that adult improvers, you know, improving in tactics and such and, you know, maybe the only reason that they're out low is because they might occasionally hang a piece. You know, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a big step is to maintain your pieces. But then the next step is to get your pieces in good positions and uh, influence mistakes by the opponent and then taking advantage of that. And so I think that an adult improver can really uh, see into that well. Yeah, and it's a good point. Uh, again, the accessibility of the language. So someone rated lower than 1400 might the the chess puzzles part i think are going to be challenging the actual chess but everything else the way he explains things i think is is understandable so um you might you might struggle when testing yourself but certainly you will learn from the book um so yeah definitely and and of course uh positional chess books especially for under 2000 are uh somewhat rare so in, in that puts this in sort of its own category as well um, so yeah, definitely can't really recommend it any higher for chess improvement, but that does bring us to the unfortunate section that we will always have, which is quibbles. So I don't have a ton of quibbles with this book. Um, the one thing I would say in terms of the content is it can be overwhelming. Um, so it's just, it almost could be three, four separate books. And, um, uh, certainly, I mean, I, I try, I, you know, again, I'd been, I'd expo- I'd been exposed to the material before and I'd used it before, but I hadn't sat and read the whole book cover to cover. And certainly I wouldn't recommend doing that in the three to four weeks that I did. Um, it just like, you know, I'm on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of uh, grasping of the material presented or at least the intended audience. But I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to digest. So. Um, I, yeah, I mean, too much bang for your buck, I guess, if that's a quibble. But yeah, I mean, I would say a student needs a proper plan for how to approach it because you don't want to reach a point where uh, you're just inputting too much data into your brain at once. And as a result, you kind of don't retain any of it. Um, what a, Do you have any quibbles, Todd, or anything to add? I would say, um, yeah, just one minor quibble, which is I'd like to have more diagrams, really. Um, uh, that make it easier to follow 
if you um, you know don't don't have a board. Now, actually, this leads into my other quibble. It's, as far as I can tell, it's not available on any chess apps. You know, the forward chess app is is absolutely brilliant. I think just the whole idea that on your phone you you know you have the board it, because um, it, it's kind of hard to to do a chess book. It has a lot of variations, right? Because you have to. You know, you're looking at the book, you're looking at the board back and forth, and then you want to do a variation, but then you want to go back. You have to put all the pieces back in the same place. Uh, just it's tedious, and you can do that on the chess app. You just touch a move, and instantly the board is right there. And you can read a chess book anywhere on the go, waiting in line, uh, or whatever. So I, I think it'd be great to have that in an app, um, and then you wouldn't need as many diagrams in the book but um i know you had a, a recent podcast talking about the anon files where they they had a particular reason with the photographs not to put the book in a, a chess app but I, I don't know of any reasons not to do that with reassess your chess yeah i agree and i asked around a little bit you know i'm i'm friendly with some of the people at chessable and, and forward chess and there there's definitely interest in turning it into an ebook but again i think uh Soman, um, he's semi-retired. His his books have sold very well, um, so I I don't know. He's uh he's maybe not as uh not as quick to answer his inquiries as um some other people. But I mean, it would be an amazing contribution. And Jeremy, if you're listening, it would line your pockets. You know, um, I would say that the end game book is on an app, the E Plus Chessbooks app. Oh wow, you you managed to name an app I didn't even. No. <laughs> um, yep. So if you're if you're dying to at least read that book, which is great, and you could do a whole podcast perhaps on that one, but um, but you have that. Oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention, if I can. Um, it was an improvement idea, but um, but yeah, I just want to make sure to mention this. At the end of each chapter, he has uh, summaries, uh, which are great, and and it reminds me when I read through the third edition, I created an outline. I typed in all of his like key points, which were in italics, and um, you can you know kind of do that. At, I wanted to try to memorize it. You know, like Cigar Shaw said that he uh, internalized everything after a while, and that can help with that process. So I actually typed out all the the key points, you know, kind of from the end of chapter summaries, and then I can review it regularly and. And the other thing I just recently discovered is there's a way on the iPhone, probably for Android, it's the same, but you can have it read whatever's on the screen. Um, and so if I have the outline, I put it into a PDF. And when I'm taking a break from listening to old perpetual chess podcasts, I can um, have the screen reader read me my reassess your chess outline. Excellent. Yeah. He, he, um, you know, bullet points, I feel like I've kind of taken over the world, but yeah, once again, it underscores his attention to detail that he does those summaries at the end of the book. Um, I mean, end, end of each chapter. One other thing I wanted to put in uh, shout out to Evs, Eves, I hope I'm saying your name right, but a perpetual chess listener who listened to the uh, Mikhail Tal recap emailed me and sorry, I don't have your last name. Uh, looking at the email, uh, Eves, Y V E S. Um, but he reminded me about the Chessify app that was on my radar, and then I just totally forgot because, of course, Sam and I were also lamenting the uh, lack of um, lack of ebook for Life of Game- Life and Games of Mikhail Tall. But the Chessify app—this is not a paid endorsement; <laughs> it's a free app—and I just like the product. But basically, you can scan any chess position 
um, from your phone and then it from there it picks up the position. So I took his advice to heart and that definitely helped me. As I mentioned, I'm often reading with uh, you know, havoc going on in, in my household. So it's super helpful. It doesn't always get the positions exactly right, but then you just edit the position the right way, say whose move it is, and you're off to the races. Um, and especially when you have game snippets or it's a game that you can't find online on ChessDB or ChessGames.com, I definitely recommend um, it as a ebook hack for when you don't have an ebook. But those are my only quibbles, really, and I think those um, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, so, Todd, anything to add before we call it a night or, in the listener's case, possibly morning or afternoon? No, I think that's it. Hopefully we've made our case that this is a, an awesome book and well-deserving of your approximately $20. Um, I did want to mention that um, if people wanted to uh, contact me, they can find me on chess.com. My username is Tospeki, T-O-S-P-E-K-E. I apologize, it's not easy to pronounce. I never um, realized or, or thought that I would ever need to actually pronounce it until I was uh, watching a streamer on Twitch, and they mm-hmm. wanted to say my name. And, and they're like, did I get that right? And I thought to myself, well, I don't even know what's right. I don't know how to pronounce that username. So T-O-S-P-E-K-E. Okay. Well, yeah. So, and again, I'll also put a link to that in the notes. And Todd, I just want to thank you again. I mean, you've been so on top of this project. You did a great job just now. Um, I feel like we hit our major points. Uh, We're only moderately over an hour. So uh, I am uh, quite pleased with uh, the work you put in and again, commend you for uh, offering to donate them a bit of money to the Robert Katende initiative. So Todd, um, we're, I'm going to do the blindfold chess problems, but last month, um, it took me about 10 takes to do them. Um, so I learned the hard way that I should say goodbye to the guest and then I'll add it in. So Todd, we're going to say goodbye listeners. We've got two blindfold problems coming up if you stay tuned, but Todd, thanks again. And, uh, hopefully people can, uh, give you a shout on chess.com. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be uh, a guest on the show. And uh, yeah, I was also thinking about starting a a blog on uh, chess.com. I've never blogged before, so someone can uh, check that out as well. But uh, yeah, they make it so easy. It kind of seems like you got to do it. Right. But uh, thanks again, Ben. I really appreciate it. And uh, yep, hope everyone has a good rest of the evening or, or morning, depending on where you are. All right. Take care, Todd. Thanks again. All right, guys, I am back to give you the blindfold chess puzzles of the month. I forgot to mention, if you want to keep up with this project in particular, the chess books recaptured in particular, the landing page for all things chess books recaptured will be at www.perpetualchesspod.com slash recaptured. So whether you're interested in volunteering to be a guest co-host at some point or want to catch up on the first episode or whatever it may be, that's where you would go. Now, on to the blindfold puzzles. So I'm going to tell you guys where the pieces are. There will be a click-through link in the show notes. The first one will just have the puzzle, and then there'll be a second one with the solution. So you can treat this the way you like. The first one, as we mentioned with Todd, is from Reassess Your Chess, page 45. 
I am guessing it's about a 1400 level puzzle, something like that. So without further ado, I will read the piece placement. So get your bearings. We will pause for a second. And again, do not attempt this while driving. But here we go. So white has a king on h1, a pawn on a4, and a bishop on a2. Those are the white pieces. Black has a king on g7 and a knight on d8. And it's white to move and win. And I am going to repeat the whole thing. So once again, white has a king on h1, a pawn on a4, and a bishop on a2. Black has a king on g7 and a knight on d8. And it is white to move and win. That's puzzle number one. Puzzle number two is significantly harder, just to warn you guys. So I'm guessing this is about the 2200 level, but it's not trivial to solve it even with the pieces set up, but there are not a lot of pieces on the board. So I would recommend you guys try it blindfolded, but if you're stumped, you could try it by setting up the position or clicking through the link that has the the puzzle set up and try it from there. This is taken from Pocket Trading Chess Book number two by GM Lev Albert and Al Lawrence. It's a fun little tiny little puzzle book that you can take with you on the subway or whatever it may be. They say that this is a study by someone named Hiker, H-E-I-E-K-E-R. I was unable to find another source for this study, but it is engine checked and ready to go. So here is Puzzle number two, white has a king on c1, a pawn on h6, and a bishop on b8. Black has a king on h4, a pawn on e5, and a bishop on d4. So once again, and it's white to move and win, and once again, white has a king on c1, a pawn on h6, and a bishop on b8, and black has a king on h4, a pawn on e5, and a bishop on d4, and it's white to move and win. That is all for this month's month's Perpetual Chess Recaptured. Thanks to you all for listening and making it to the end, and I will catch you guys soon. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy, but also to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, whether via word of mouth, positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. All of that stuff helps more people find out about the show. But most of all, I want to thank the people who support the show financially. You guys have enabled me to continuously work to improve and now expand the Perpetual Chess podcast offering. So for that, I am forever grateful. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Special thanks to Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, Apprentice's Twitch channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clef, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, Mike Zelazny, 
Moonmaster9000. Where you been hiding, Moonmaster? You haven't asked a question in a while. Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stonix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, and I would also like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Aaron Waffler, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, Daylin Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am elect Donnie Ariel, or possibly not I am elect. Either way, Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt of Chessable, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, James Bonastia, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, JJ Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspide, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paula Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Peter Sodi, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, WGM, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrancouz, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, everyone. I will catch you guys next week. Podcast Network.